let it happen You're full of life now You're full of passion That's how we made you Just let it happen And you calls Each one of us By a To come That was awesome. Thank you guys. Let's give it up for them one more time. All right. Could somebody grab that table for me real quick? Kobe, could you do it for me real quick? Just the, the table right here. I can do it. I just have my laptop. So Billy's got it. Thank you, Billy. <laughs> I feel so served. Praise God. Thank you, Billy. Perfect. All right, good. Take me back. Take me back to the beginning when I was young and I was running through the fields with you. A couple weeks ago, I was praying in the back of the room uh, during, it was actually during uh, Amy Lyle's sharing as she was talking about the story of the prodigal son and, and the heart of the generous father, the good father who loves his children so much. And as she was sharing on that, I just had this impression um, that God wanted to, uh, to have us do a dance before one of my messages in, in this series. And so I happened to end up having lunch with, with Aisha and, uh, and Marcy that week, or Aisha that week, and then Aisha brought Marcy in later, and, um, and just shared with her, hey, because I knew she was a dancer, hey, would you want to do a dance? And so she choreographed all this and did all this work in the past like 10 days, which is amazing and did that whole dance. Yeah, it was awesome. And as I was watching the choreography and the dance, just the message struck my spirit and, and what they did was so perfectly attuned to what I'm sharing on tonight. And I love that because we collaborated a little bit, but it just hit the exact right note. You know, last week we talked about this meta-narrative um, and I'm gonna kinda go into review mode for a moment for those of you who uh, weren't with us. I get my stuff together here and pulled up properly. This meta-narrative going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. <laughs> all the way going back to the Garden of Eden. And there in the Garden of Eden, you know, it's, it's this idea, if we go all the way back to the beginning, we see this picture of a proud father who created human beings, 
literally breathed into the nostrils of Adam. He created us with a different kind of intimacy than any other aspect of his creation. It says he formed us of the dust with his own hands. And when God created human beings, he takes them and he shows them all the creatures that he had created, all those things on the land and in the sea. And and, in the New Living Translation, it says, look, exclamation point, I have created these things. And he begins to show them what he has made them as a proud father. And I just remember the joy of my parents giving me like my very first car when I gave bicycles to my kids uh, at Christmas time. This joy of having done something for them that you're excited about. And we see the picture of the proud papa presenting to the crown of his creation all that he has made for them to have dominion over. And they were in the garden and they said that their job was to tend to the garden and all was well, and it says on that final day, the end of the sixth day, where God, on each conclusion of each day, it said, it was good, it was good, it was good. At the end, he says, it is very good, right? Like, this is the heart of the proud papa that Amy so beautifully articulated, runs to the sun, right, and throws him a party and celebrates. And what I think is beautiful is a lot of times people will say, oh, well, you know, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament present two different pictures of God. He's kind in the New Testament, but he's this God of wrath in the Old Testament. But if you go all the way back to Genesis, you see, you see God's heart towards us was always one of kindness. It was always one of a, a father of all creation who wanted to provide and present the very best to his children. But the problem with humanity and the problem that I find so often even within myself is that though that is God's heart towards us and always has been and always will be, God has always only ever been good towards you, right? Regardless of what you felt, he's only ever always been good towards you. But Eve thought he was withholding and Adam thought he was withholding. And so they took the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and in that moment they rebelled against God and everything fell into ruins. And the tragedy of that moment is where God's first act as a, as a father was to bless his crown of creation, those that he created to have dominion and rule and reign with him. Now he has to take the very ones that he blessed and he has to pronounce a curse on them. And in that, in that curse, he declared that there would be pain in childbirth. And he declared that the ground, though Adam would work hard on the ground, it would only yield thorns and thistles, right? He, he cursed the ground and he cursed, Adam even said, you're gonna return to dust, for dust you came from. And so death entered and pain entered and sorrow entered and all those things came in. And it says when Adam and Eve fell, it says that they felt ashamed of their nakedness. Their intimacy with God was severed and in the severing of that intimacy, they lost their identity. And so they hid themselves, they sowed fig leaves, and uh, I share, as I shared last week, you know, when you think of like uh, trying to actually cover yourself with fig leaves, uh, that's, not a very, that's not a very strong protection, right? Like it's not a very pleasant visual image, but the truth is probably pretty drafty, those fig leaves, right? I don't know if you've ever tried to like sow leaves or plants together, but, uh, but they don't make a very good or very strong or very durable covering. And that's so often what we do ourselves, we try and hide the shame of our brokenness um, with things that are insufficient. But the beautiful thing that we see at the, the end, even as God has cursed them and, and cast them out of the garden, is in his mercy, he covers them with animal skins, which how much better is it is, and sufficient is an animal skin covering than fig leaves, right? And in the covering of the animal skins, we see a prophetic picture of God's atoning work in Christ, that one day there would be one that though our our righteousness is but filthy rags. Though the very best we could do for ourselves is but fig leaves. God will cover us with the Lamb of God and with his sacrifice and he'll remove our sins and remove our shame and we'll not need to hide anymore. And so kind of looking at the, the narrative in Genesis and then I just thought to myself, okay, I know right, that the book of Revelation is a picture of, of the future glory and restoration and I went to, Revelation 21 and 22, and I just found this powerful phrase that so often I, I feel like I've glossed over even in my own reading of those sections. Revelation 22, three, it says, there shall be no more curse. And it just struck me so powerfully after having read the context of Genesis and the picture of the father having to pronounce a curse on his, 
his child that ultimately through Christ, God's plan was always to reach a day when the curse that was established over creation was lifted and everything goes back to as it was intended. And the header in my Bible says the restoration of Eden in that portion of scripture. There shall be no more curse, hallelujah, but the throne of God and the lamb shall be in it. And I love that when God restores something, he doesn't just take it back to what it was, he makes it even better than it was before. Because see, in the Garden of Eden, he would come down and walk in the cool of the day, right? But in Zion, it says he actually establishes his throne in that place with permanence. The God of the universe comes to rule, we say it jokingly, but to a planet near you, right? The God of the cosmos. And if you go back one more chapter, Revelation 21, I love this, you know, 21, it says there's a voice that is coming from the throne proclaiming the restoration of all things, and then the one who's seated on the throne actually speaks, and he says, look, I am making everything new, and then he said to me, so he, he, go, he pronounces the God of the cosmos, I'm making everything new, I'm, I'm reestablishing the creation as I ordered it in the beginning, and then he turns to John and he says, John, write this down. For what I will tell you is trustworthy and true. It is finished. Which I love that God begins his pronouncement of the new creation with the same words that Jesus pronounced at the conclusion of the crucifixion. On the cross, he gives up his spirit and he says, it is finished. And what's true is that at that moment, it was said and done and sealed what God would do ultimately in the new creation, right? Like Jesus said it was finished and now the eternal father on the throne says, I'm bringing it to a conclusion. What you started on the cross will now be manifest and it is finished. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life and all who are victorious will inherit all these blessings. And this is what I find so profound. I will be their God and they will be my children. And what I want us to think about tonight, okay, it's a little different than what you may have expected from a shame to sonship message, okay? What I want us to actually consider is that when God establishes us in sonship, it's not just about us having good feelings of being loved and accepted. Now that's a part of the package, beloved, okay? You can feel good about God's love for you and your acceptance and that emotional connection being established, like you are not an orphan, you are loved, okay? But I also want us to think about, because Paul exhorts us to think about in a very practical way over and over and over again in the Pauline epistles, he exhorts us to consider that not only are you a child, but you're a child who will receive an inheritance. And that real material inheritance should change the way we think about ourselves, the world around us, and the way we relate to each other. I actually grew up in a, a family that uh, was pretty pri privileged and affluential, and I was just thinking about how the idea of the inheritance I would receive one day affected the confidence with which I walked through life. And that's just in the natural. Like if you know that, perhaps some of you in this room know that one day you're gonna get an inheritance of X number of dollars. And perhaps some of us in this room are, are blessed enough to know the inheritance I'm gonna relieve, receive, I'm gonna be set for life, right? If you knew you were gonna get an inheritance with which you are set for life, would that, would that discourage some anxiety? Would you worry considerably less about your future? Would you feel you wouldn't feel inferior around people who thought they were better than you. Or, you know, it gives you this confidence and this security and an ability to say, I can walk through life and kind of regardless of what the ups and the downs are, I know I have an inheritance coming to me because of what my parents have done for me, right? Beloved, I wanna tell you, you have an inheritance coming to you. <laughs> and Paul understood that inheritance so concretely that he said, there's no reason for you to have to worry about anything. Don't you know you're gonna rule and reign with Christ in eternity? And that should give you an ability to persevere and have endurance even in the hardest of circumstances because don't you know that if you participate in the sufferings of Christ, it's so eventually you can participate in his glory. And if you suffer with Christ, you'll receive his inheritance because you're an, not just a child, but a co-heir with Christ of a very real material kingdom that one day will come and govern the nations of the earth. 
Okay, good. I don't know if that's my whole message or my introduction. We'll find out as I, <laughs> as I go along here. So that kind of brings us up to speed. But what I want to hit on as I talk about this today is it's so important for us to know the meta narrative, which is what we kind of dived into last week. And if you weren't here last week, check that out. It's up on our, it'll be up on our, uh, our YouTube channel and our, our website. But knowing, knowing the, the narrative that this is all concluding with a day when the curse gets lifted from us, right? And that can give us security and confidence. Now what I want us to explore today is what does that actually mean for my life? What's my part in the larger story that God is telling? And it's pretty cool because when you see the meta narrative or the narrative, the arc of scripture established, then you go back and you read what Jesus taught and what Paul taught and what Peter and John taught and you realize, oh, they saw this same arc, right? This was the exact same thread of of human history that they saw themselves playing a part in and they're constantly exhorting practical concerns with respect to eternal realities. And that should be the mindset of the believer. We should constantly be thinking about our practical concerns in the context of our eternal realities. Like I don't have to worry or stress about what's gonna happen because I have a father who loves me, but not only do I have a father who loves me, but I have a kingdom that I'm going to fully inherit one day. So I can be okay being disrespected in this life or dishonored or maybe not making as much money as I want because what I give up in this life for the cause of Christ, I'm going to receive far greater reward in eternity. Amen. Before we even dive into that though, I just, oh man, it's just so fun to study this stuff and then to go, and, and here's what I wanna say is as you hear it and you get revelation of it and, and you, you know what, what the word has said about your identity in Christ, when you know it, that's the first step, but then when you start to believe it, something changes. And I actually have faith tonight that some of you would hear things that you've heard many, many times before, but you'd actually begin to believe it in a different way. And there was a sister who came to me on Monday of this past week. Uh, I, I taught this, uh, this message on Sunday night about kind of the big narrative of, of how God's taking us out of shame into ultimately sonship. And they said, it was so cool because during worship, they said, there was a place where I've had a stronghold in my mind concerning my identity and concerning the fear of people. And I've known for a long time that my way of thinking was wrong, but I haven't been able to flip the switch and change the way that I've been thinking. And just during worship, before anybody got up and spoke or taught anything, they said it was like that switch finally flipped. And I've been asking God for that, they said, for five years. And when that switch was flipped, I all of a sudden was able to believe things that I haven't been able to believe before about how God feels about me, about who I am in Christ. And then she said, and you got up and all you did was explain in preaching what had just happened to me in worship. Isn't that what we want? Like that what we're up here, that's the dream of every preacher, right? That's like the easiest thing in the world, like not having to slog away, like hopefully someone will understand, but that the Holy Spirit would breathe on us in this room so that at the end of the ministry time, some of us who've heard these things our whole lives, we would get prayer and we would go down one way, we'd come up another. Like that's what I want. And if I can get there, even without, the less I can say, the better, right? If God can just go to work on our hearts. So uh, before even going any further, I just feel faith. I want to pray for that. And I wanna ask God to go to work on our hearts. That the things that I'm expounding on, and I'll probably share another 20 minutes and we'll get to pray together. The things I'm expounding on in this, in this teaching tonight, that it would go from the head to the heart and that God would revive love in us and give us such a confidence, not only that we're sons and daughters, but sons and daughters whom he's prepared an inheritance for. So spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. God, illuminate our eyes and show us the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, God. I pray the revelation of what it means that we have an inheritance in him. I pray the revelation of what it means that we are his inheritance, God. I ask, Father, that things that have been formed through the sowing of the word of God into our hearts for many years, those things would spring up from their hidden places, God, and they would become uh, supernaturally and instantaneously fruitful in ways beyond we could even imagine. 
Father, I'm praying for us to even enter into a place of faith, that places where it feels like our foundations are shaky because of, of what, like what Billy was praying for earlier, just the trauma and abuse of our, of our childhood or perhaps a relationship gone wrong where we were wounded by an authority, Father, and it's put a wrong image of God in us and we fought that wrong image of God but we haven't been able to shake free of it. God, I pray tonight, replace it with the image of the loving Father. Replace it, Lord, with the image of the one who, who so loves us that he puts the ring on our finger and the robe on our shoulders, and that that's not just a cool story about how God forgives us of our sin, but really there's a literal day in which we will receive white robes from the King of Kings, and we will receive crowns upon our head. That they're not metaphorical crowns, that they're real crowns that will convey the radiance of his glory and demonstrate how we've lived in obedience, God. Make it real to us. Make these mysterious and spiritual truths so real to us in this time, God. I'm praying for myself, Lord. Let me just have one position in my heart and mind and revelation at the start of this time. Let me come through and and be touched by you, God, and be changed. Show us who we are in Christ, Lord, and let us be so filled with gratitude. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right. So I love this. There's a book called The Search for Significance. I teach it regularly to our interns, and there's a little portion in there, and it just lists these like eight or nine things that happened to you when you were born again. And I just want to remind you of this, and you guys may know that these things happened to you when you were born again, but it, just think about it. Think back to the moment. Again, I love the, the prophetic nature of the dance and, and everything that was presented in it, like back to the moment when you first were free in Christ, when you first were born again in your spirit, when you were young, when you were but a babe in Christ, that was when these things happened to you. And when they happened, they happened with, a, with a, not a degree of permanence, but absolute permanence. And you're in the process of discovering how to live out what has happened to you, the mystery of what has happened to you when Christ took up residence in your dwelling. So I'm just gonna list these out. If you're taking notes, you can jot them down, but they are in that Search for Significance book and, and it's great. And I'm not gonna read all the scriptures. I'm just gonna kind of rattle these off and, and then we can just all be grateful that we're born again, hallelujah. So when you were born again, all your sins, past, present, and future were forgiven. And as long as you were in Christ, when you pass from this life into the next, that is an instant promotion. I love to think about the great reversal. All of humanity, for the most part, has a fear of the unknown of death, right? The pain of death, that our life would come to an end. Bible says our lives are like vapor. You know, and, and, and what happened to us when we truly put our faith in Christ is that what is everyone else's worst day in their life that they try to avoid more than anything else becomes literally the best day of our lives, right? Like there will be no better day in your life in this age than the day that you cross over from the temporal to the eternal. Like that is going to be the best day of your life. Like better than the day you got married, better than the day you had your, better than any other day in your life, the day that you come face to face with Jesus. That's awesome. Everyone else's worst day has now become your best day. Like talk about a great reversal. You became a child of God when you put your faith in Christ. Like even if you didn't realize it, that is immediately how God began to relate to you. You received eternal life, which I just mentioned. You were delivered from Satan's domain and transferred to the kingdom of Christ. Christ comes to dwell within you. So not only does God begin to like speak with you and interact with you and treat you with a child, but he actually takes up residence in your life, you become a new creation. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. And I love, you know, Paul is so revelatory. He's applying what the book of Revelation says over all creation, like behold, all things become new over all creation. And he's taking the cosmic reality of the new creation and he's distilling it down. He says, when you became a Christian, you became a new creation in the same way God is going to recreate everything in the same manner. He started in us what he will eventually do with everything that it will be entrusted to our care. 
It's awesome. You're declared righteous by God. I love this metaphor if you've never heard it before. Imagine a ledger that has all the things written down on it that you've ever done wrong. All your sins. For me, it would include, I was a habitual liar. I actually, believe it or not, it's fun to talk about who you used to be because you realize, man, how far God, I used to drop F-bombs all the time. Like, I cannot even conceive of saying that word. It makes me uncomfortable to even think it, you know, because God's done such a miraculous thing in me. And, and I just have to go, man, that's amazing. But it would have been like, there would have been all those cuss words, all the times I would have used God's name in, in blasphemy, all the times that I would have, have lied to my parents or dishonored them, all the uh, sexually immoral relationships, all the times that I took something that didn't belong to me. I probably downloaded like thousands and thousands of dollars of music illegally. Like just... Some of you are laughing because you know what I'm talking about. Back in the Napster days, you just go on there and you just pirate, just whole uh, movies, music, just everything. That's stealing, right? Like all that would be on my ledger. And what Jesus saw fit to do is, is he had his ledger, which had all the good acts of kindness, mercy, justice, everything, all the healing miracles, all the places he showed compassion and tenderness, like all the righteousness that was embodied in Christ's life. And that was his ledger and there wasn't one transgression or sin. And he walks up to you and he says, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm going to exchange my ledger for yours. You get all my righteous deeds and they're gonna be credited to your account and I'm going to take all the sinful things that you've done and I'm gonna receive the punishment for them. You guys wanna, you wanna make that deal? He made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Not only did he cancel your transgression, beloved, but he filled your bank account. Like not only did he cancel all the wrong things that you've done, but he made it so you had a capacity to do good for which you will be rewarded. Hallelujah. And you received that before you did any works. Now just the rest of your life, you're getting, you're getting credit for the righteousness and you're repenting for the wickedness and the wickedness is being forgiven and washed away and the righteousness is accruing to your account. That's a good deal. That's why the gospel is called good news, right? We've entered into a love relationship with God. We don't love God because We loved him first. We love God because God loved us first, right? 1 John 4.10, he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. This is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. He decided I'm gonna be the initiator in this love relationship. And then lastly, you're fully accepted by God. Colossians 1.22, yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault, the New Living Translation says. So when you stand before God in prayer in his presence and you talk to him, though it may feel like your experience is less than perfect, God sees you clothed in Christ He sees you as you fully will be one day and he receives you in your weakness and he says, boldly come before my throne. I don't know about you, I don't know if you've ever been in front of people that are powerful, important, but um, I've had that experience a few times and I just remember that unusual feeling of being nervous to talk to someone because they're powerful and important and you know, what if I say the wrong thing, right? Because then you'll lose their favor, lose their influence. God has said, you can come before me, again, the cosmic creator and ruler of the universe. I will hear your prayer. And if you say it bad or say it wrong or do something, I'm just committed to liking you even in your weakness and, and foolishness. How many of you ever like gotten mad at God and you're arguing with him and you're, you're throwing a fit and it's like, and we have this view of God, and it's such a blessing because it is a New Testament reality that we're his child and we can whine and complain to him, right? But we should also appreciate that relationship in the context that, though while to us over here in this, in this context, like God is our daddy, right? He's, he's like more than the president of the United States over here in this other context, right? 
He's the one who commands legions of angels. He's the one who calls stars out by name. He is the one who will recreate everything according to his likeness. He is the, the consummation of all power and goodness. And, and, you know, he has saw fit to be so humble and merciful and kind to us that he lets us come and bicker with him. Beloved, that's not because of your goodness. That's because of the sufficiency of the blood of Jesus to make a way for you. And I feel like God actually hears me and sometimes answers those whiny prayers, you know. And I'm not saying that, I'm saying that we should, I'm not saying that to down anybody in here because we've all had those moments. What I'm saying is what an immeasurable, incomprehensible amount of grace that we could come to the creator of the universe and talk that way to him, right? That's so good. Like, so let's stand firm in that, you know, and then let's grow up a little bit. Amen. All right, if you want to open your Bible, I know I just kind of just, those were like the appetizers. Then we'll get, to the, we'll get to the main course in a moment. Let's look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. This is kind of continuing the theme with what happened to us in the moment we came to know Christ. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, I'll just kind of rattle off these verses. But I want us to see that Paul in all his epistles, typically in his first chapter, he orients from this point of view. He opens the book of Colossians. He opens the book of Ephesians. He talks extensively about it in the book of Romans. If it's covered that much in scripture, it's probably pretty important for us to orient our lives similarly, right? And that is who we are in Christ, what he has done for us, so that we can be immeasurably grateful to him and so that we can live free from sinfulness out of this right identity that God has established in grace. So Ephesians 1.3, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. He basically goes, Christ is the most blessed. You are united with Christ. Every blessing that is Christ's is yours. People a lot of times question, like Mark 1.11, when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan and the Father speaks audibly, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. People say, how do you know that applies to my life? And I go, well, you've been given every spiritual blessing that is in the heavenly places in Christ. So if the Father spoke it over Jesus and meant it over Jesus, and you are rolled into Christ, that means he's spoken that blessing over you. John 17, Father, I thank you that the very same love with which you have loved me, you have loved them. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. The same idea as Colossians 1, 22. God looks at us and though we feel like we're filthy and dirty, he looks at us and he sees us as we will be in perfection with him in glory. He's made us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. He decided to, in advance, adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. I think it's so key for us to understand that that when God adopted us in, he wasn't begrudging in his acceptance of us. He wasn't like, I really love Jesus. You guys are kind of mangy. You guys are kind of ratchet, as the kids say, (laughs) okay? And I'm gonna adopt you in, but it's on a a part-time basis, and we'll see if this thing's gonna work out with you or not, right? That's not what he said. What he said was, it is my pleasure to adopt you into my family because I have brought you in through Christ and I gave my precious son so that I could possess you. And Paul just takes it up a notch here. He says, so we praise God for the glorious grace that he's poured out on us because that idea that you and I would be adopted into the family of God, it's only because of his glorious grace and he's poured it out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich and kind, and it's so, his, his language here is so over the top, it's sometimes hard for us to grasp, but if you, if you break it down, you begin to meditate on it, and you go, rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Like, think of the bloodied, bruised, and broken person of Jesus on the cross, and go, the richness of God's kindness and grace towards me. Because my transgression deserved that. My sin deserved that. My wickedness deserved that. And when he purchased it on the cross, it was the richness of kindness and grace to me poured out. 
He gave us freedom by the blood of his son and forgave our sins. And this is verse 111, finally. Because we are united with Christ, because you are united with Christ, because you are one with him, you've received an inheritance from God. For he chose us in advance and makes everything work out according to his plan. He's echoing Romans 8, 28 right there. He's going, God's picked you. He's purchased you through the the death and burial and resurrection of his son so that you can ultimately receive forgiveness of your sin, have your sins canceled, and then receive eternal glory and that you can rule and reign with Christ. And he goes, this is what this is all about. And, you know, it's amazing because the Jewish people in many ways, they were prepared through the Old Testament and through all these different prophets to understand and receive these things, but yet they refused them. But in that generation in which Jesus came and then Paul came, he decided what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna show them the richness of my mercy and my grace where I've been preparing the Jews to receive this, but in part they've rejected it. That rejection of the Jews is going to be mercy and grace to the Gentiles. And so now we who are not supposed to be the children of God have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. Like the Jewish Messiah said, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm not just gonna do it for the Jewish people, I'm gonna do it for everybody throughout all human history. And this was God's plan, and Paul, as a, as a, a Pharisee and a, 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 you know, a, a Hebrew among Hebrews, like it was a mind-blowing paradigm shift for him that the inheritance that was always intended for the Jews is actually going to be for all who believe in Christ, both Jew and Gentile. Because they thought they were gonna receive a real kingdom. And that's why a lot of what Paul elucidates in Romans 8, he actually pivots, and this is a separate point, but just open parentheses. I think Paul feels the need to describe in Romans 9 and 10 the new relationship between Jew and Gentile because he spends so much of Romans 8 ascribing the inheritance that the Jews thought were theirs actually to, the, to any person that would come in Christ. And then he has to go back and clarify like, but this isn't just for Gentiles, it's for Jews as well. And, and these go together and, and a new kingdom is being launched um, through Christ and under his leadership. So what's cool, I mentioned this earlier, but like Paul explains all this and then I I really, I was kind of reading it and it was kind of funny because I was like, Paul kind of goes off like in kind of glorious high praise to God for his mercy and his grace and his kindness and he's just getting more and more excited, right, in this this first chapter of Ephesians. And then he just goes, you know what, I don't even know if you guys are gonna get this. I pray to the Father of glory that he just give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your heart would be flooded with light, that you might know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards those who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. Paul just goes, you know what? You just gotta pray to get this stuff. You gotta pray, pray until you understand who you are in Christ. Because when you understand who you are in Christ, everything changes, beloved. You live more holy. You live more bold. You live more righteous. You live more hungry for God. When you understand all the goodness that God has given us in Christ. Amen. So that's good. That's Ephesians 1. Now turn with me to Romans 8. I was nervous about this teaching because I was like, maybe this is too much Bible, but I figure you guys can handle it. You guys can handle a lot of Bible, right? Man, I had a, uh, went to a friend's birthday party last night and I had a ribeye steak and it was almost too much meat. It was bone in, ribeye, and I took like half of that thing home. And so I just encourage you, if you need to take a box and package some of this up and take it home with you, that's fine. If, the, if, if it's the bone in ribeye tonight and it's too much for you, just take some of it home. You can, you can have it for leftovers tomorrow, okay? So go with me here. There's, no, nothing, there's really not such a thing as too much Bible in a, in, a, in a message, right? Not for us at Newbridge, right? All right. So here it is in Romans 8. Four points. If you're taking notes, you can jot these down. I'm going to post these also. I have a, I have a, a website, hazenahanna.com. I'll post the notes and the, the message if you want to go back and read them. I couldn't get them cleaned up in time to, uh, to distribute them tonight, but if you want to go back and get those notes, you can get that at my, my website. So here are the four, four areas, and then we'll invite the worship team to come that kind of break down Romans chapter 8. The first thing is the same thing we've been saying kind of all along, 
but he, he says it a little bit different in Romans 8. First thing is, I'll give the four to you, and then we'll, we'll go through them piece by piece and just see how these all tie together with what we've been sharing about so far. First point is, life found in the Spirit gives victory over sin. If you are battling with areas of sin in your life, you don't need to set up more rules to govern your life. What you need to do is fellowship with the Holy Spirit more over the areas of your weakness and your brokenness. And just very practically, how do you do that? You fast, you pray, you worship over your places of brokenness, you enter into faith for the victory of God in those places, you talk to God about it, okay? And what I remember when I was coming out of the sin of pornography addiction and wrestling with sexual immorality earlier on in my walk with God, I just remember whenever I would transgress in my own soul, I would, I would want to erect a barrier in, in my relationship with God because I felt so much shame, right? It's the human nature to want to go hide when you know that you've fallen because we know that we're evil. We know that we're unworthy. We know that we're not good enough. But what God's word says is fight that tendency because that tendency will not give you victory. Because when we run from God, we're actually running from the only one who has the power to help us. Okay, Billy shares this image a lot in his Father Heart of God preaching, but it's just so uh, appropriate that when we are, when our knee is skinned and our uh, lip is bloody for where we fell down, we were outside playing and we were doing something we shouldn't have done, and we, we, we should in that moment run in our mess to the only one who has the ability to patch our knee and to clean the junk off us and dab our, our bloody lip, right? It was funny today because I was, my, my daughter, she... Mm, she's, she's four years old, and she gave me a raspberry at lunch today. She stuck her tongue out at me, right? And I said, girl, you're gonna get a spanking. Don't you do that. And then immediately she proceeded to slip on her chair and bang her chin against the table. <laughs> and it just took everything in me not to laugh and say, that serves you right. Cause, but I didn't do that because I'm her father, right? So I scooped her up. I said, baby, I'm, even though she had just, even though she just disrespected me, I said, baby, I love you. I'm sorry. Are you okay? You know, as though it had never happened, right? And that's the heart of the father towards us. Like we disrespect him. We thumb our nose at him. We then have the consequences of our sin. And when we feel the consequences of our sin, right, we run to him and he doesn't go, well, I told you so. As much as we might think that's who God is, it's not who, he, it's not who the scripture reveals him to be. He's the father that runs to the prodigal son, when the prodigal takes one step towards him. And so life found in the spirit, it gives us victory over sin. Romans, uh, sorry, we are heirs with Christ, that's point two. There's a future glory we can rest our hope in, that's point three. And God's everlasting love is the foundation of our confidence. And those are kind of the four, four sections or the four ways that you can divide Romans eight. I'll say them again. Life found in the spirit gives victory over sin. We are heirs with Christ. As we overcome sin, we enter into our inheritance. There's a future glory that is a part of that inheritance that we can rest our hope in. And then God's everlasting love is the foundation of our confidence. And I've been teaching a little bit, but I'm more gonna preach Romans 8, okay? So just flip your Bibles open to it and we're gonna go for five minutes, all right? You guys ready? Buckle up your Bible seatbelts, all right. Romans 8, you're not controlled by your sinful nature, but you're controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. The Spirit of God has put to death your sin nature if the Spirit of God lives inside you. And I use this example a few times talking about pornography because I think it's one of the things that's most epidemic in this generation. I know that it was one of the most shameful things sin-wise in, in, in my life that I had to struggle to work through. And I know that the, the reality is that probably many in this room have had, a similar, have had that similar struggle. But I remember that uh, before I truly came to Christ, I, I just knew this was wrong. It was bad for me, but I could not stop. I could not find a way to get victory over sexual immorality in my life, no matter how hard I tried. And then when I became a Christian and I surrendered my life to Christ and the spirit of God came into my life, I went from condemnation to conviction. And that conviction, it, it empowered me and convinced me that God had something better for me. 
And because not only was it, I want to give up sin because it's bad for me, but I actually have a superior pleasure that will come from intimacy with God. And so what we do is we replace not just the the law that says, oh, this is sinful and condemning, but we replace it with the law of the spirit of God, which is grace, which is God wants to give you something better, come up out of your sin. He'll empower you to do it. And then he'll reward you for having done it, both in intimacy now and in eternity. It says that there's a crown of life awaiting for those who resist temptation in this age. And so the spirit of God, it's putting to death our sin nature. And Romans 8, 11 says, it's the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead. He lives in you. So the same one that brought resurrection power to the life of, to the, to the dead body of Christ, he lives inside you. And as God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, he will give life to your mortal body by the same spirit living within you. And I believe there are many ways you can interpret that, but it's very much about this idea that God empowers you to live righteously and he's gonna raise you from the dead. I remember, uh, it's kind of a funny story, but I was on this conference call and it was during a time when I did our night watch at the house of prayer where I prayed from midnight to 6 a.m. And so it was a late call for me, even though it was 8 a.m. in the morning. And uh, we were supposed to share testimonies on this, on this call, and it was a number of different uh, leaders and pastors I was on there with. And I, I got into my lazy boy chair at, at home at the end of my day, and we all got on this call. And uh, I turned the heater on, it was cold out. I got bundled up in a blanket, and the guy started to share his testimony, and I promptly fell asleep in the like, first sentence of him, of him sharing and then woke up to the facilitator on the call saying, okay, let's all respond to this person's intimate sharing about their like deepest life struggles. (laughs) And so I wish I could tell you differently, but in that moment, I flat out lied. I lied to save faith. I panicked and I lied. And it was the first time in like many years that I'd consciously lied about something. And so I get off the call, I just like BS'd it, like that was really powerful, thank you for your, <laughs> thank you for your vulnerable sharing. Really meant a lot that you'd trust us with those things. Oh, it was awful. <laughs> and then I got off and I was like, oh my gosh, I just lied to those guys. I felt so bad. And I just remember my conscience just laying in bed trying to go to sleep and I was just so convicted and I was like, there's no, there's no way, literally no way. I will think about this for years to come if I do not confess and repent to those guys. So I woke up and said, guys, I'm so sorry. I lied to all of you. I fell asleep during your sharing. Please forgive me. And I felt so much better the moment that, and they forgave me and we all kind of had a good laugh about how ridiculous I was. But I just remember how I used to lie with such ease to people in order to gain advantage or save face or whatever. And God has brought me through the sanctifying process. And now if I, if I knowingly were to tell a lie, I couldn't live with myself. Beloved, that's not because I tried harder to overcome my sin problem with lying. That's because as I fellowship with God, I've become, an, I've become a different person. Like that's God's grace at work in me. That's what this Bible verse is talking about. Romans 8, 12. Dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what the sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. It felt like death in my soul when I lied to those. As, as funny, kind of funny as it is, it was death in my soul when I lied. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. Now what I want you to see here is that victory over sin, he directly connects it to identity, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. See, I know I'm God's son because his spirit wouldn't discipline me that way if I wasn't his child. Because I want that peace that comes with a clean conscience, hallelujah, that the world knows nothing about. Beloved, if you have secret sins in your life that have accumulated places where you're not being transparent or honest or have accountability, You can have a clean and free conscience by just going to whoever you need to go to and confessing and you will live freer and happier. Doesn't matter how embarrassing it is. Doesn't matter how much you think, oh, it'll never be good. Who cares what people think about you? The spirit of God will rest upon you and rest in your life with greater peace, greater freedom from sin, greater righteousness, a clearer sense of identity if you respond to that conviction of the Holy Spirit and go and make that situation right. 
it feels good to overcome sin in your life. Like it feels like, see, I remember, it's hard to remember, but I remember what it was like when I was struggling in the grip of sin. And I remember that feeling of helplessness and I can, and and so even though we have to wrestle against sin and man, it's, that wrestle can be hard. We can have different places in which we fail uh, with respect to certain temptations over and over and over again. What I've seen is what took me 15 years to grow in bondage to a certain place, God can overcome in two years or six months or six weeks of intentional confession, humbling myself, prayer, fasting, and that's grace, beloved. Grace doesn't mean we don't have to apply effort. What it means is that our effort that in no way could ever work on its own actually works to break the bondage of sin in our lives. Because Romans 8.15, you've not received a spirit that makes you a fearful slave, You're not a slave to the law. What the law did was God put the righteous standards out there and we just failed every single time. And what it did is it put you in bondage because it clearly showed you that you were evil through the law and it clearly showed you that you were not able to meet that standard. And so Paul's saying to a certain degree, we became slaves because of the law and our inability to fulfill it, but the spirit hasn't done that to us. What the spirit has done is it's actually given you a capacity to first be forgiven for your sin, and now by the power of God, you put to death the works of the flesh and you begin to experience victory. You receive God's spirit. He adopted you as his own children, and now you call him Abba Father. And I love that word Abba, I believe it's the Aramaic word, means papa, daddy. Only the natural born children of the household were allowed to call the father Abba. Only those who were guaranteed to receive an inheritance were allowed to call the father Abba. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are the children of God. And that is what our spirit tells us. And I pray that even right now as we close, worship team, you guys can start to come up. My prayer for us in our ministry time tonight is that the spirit of God would bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. Sorry, Matthew, I threw you off. You gotta reset some stuff here, but as they do that, just stay with me. Don't be distracted. Romans eight seventeen. we are his children. We are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of his glory. So see, there's a future glory that we can rest our hope in. See, the Spirit has put to death the works of sin and the flesh in our lives. The Spirit of God has told us that we are his children and given us victory. And then as his children, we actually have an inheritance. And this last part about the future glory that we can put our hope in, Romans 8, 19. And this goes back to the meta-narrative for all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who his children really are. See, because against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join with God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. See, your deliverance wasn't just about you being free from sin, it was actually as you obey God, becoming the heirs of all things and bringing the rest of creation into redemption and out of the fall. See, when you got delivered from the curse, eventually all that you will have dominion over will be delivered from the curse. And there will be no more curse. And God will be among his people and his people will rule as we were intended to rule in the beginning. See, this isn't just about you getting free from sin. This is about you taking dominion over creation in an eternal age as an heir, as a son, as a daughter to the living God. And when you begin to view your little fight with sexual immorality or lying or anger in the context of the redemption of all creation, that should give you a pretty strong motivation to fight the good fight. Not just for your own benefit, but creation is waiting for the day that you're revealed in glory. Like creation is looking like, when are the sons and daughters gonna take their place? And it actually says, verse 22, that there's a groan in creation. And I love this, there's the, Romans 8, 22, I wish I had time to go into this. We'll have to do another teaching on this. But there's the groan of creation and then there's the groan of intercession and we see those two contrast. The groan of creation is under the bondage of the curse. The groan of intercession is all about reconciling that dissonance. 
I'll say it again, there's a groan of creation because creation is under the curse, but there's a groan within humanity under the leadership of the Holy Spirit that is intercession, and that intercession actually says, the oppression of evil in the earth, I groan under the weight of that evil until the kingdom of God breaks forth and then there's a great reversal. And our groaning actually delivers creation from its groan under the curse. We don't know how to pray, but the Spirit of God leads us. The Holy Ghost leads us in prayer that reconciles the dissonance between a fallen creation and a righteous kingdom of God. You guys following me? And so Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, he knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. But in that moment, the groan, the dissonance, and Jesus wept at the tomb. And commentaries will say it was because of his sense of the power of death that was not yet fully broken and delivered. And he was able to deliver Lazarus, but how about the many others who die prematurely because of evil that he wasn't yet able to call forth? And he's groaning and he's weeping. Similarly, we groan. So we see this picture. The Spirit delivers us from sin, teaches us that we're the children of God, gives us an inheritance. That same groan helps us reconcile, be a part of the reconciliation of all creation. And then Paul closes. And I love where he closes and where he lands because for Paul, as beautiful and as complex and revelatory as all these things are, he comes back to something that's very simple. And the question is, the question that he's probably thinking that he's answering, a good teacher will anticipate the questions of their students and try to answer them, is this just seems a little much, Paul. <laughs> like, are we really gonna inherit everything? Like, are we really gonna be sons and daughters that rule with God? This seems a little bit much. Romans eight thirty one. What shall we say about wonderful things such as these? If God is truly for us, then who can be against us? Since he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he give us everything else? Like for the person that would hear this and go, that sounds like fantasy. You think you're gonna rule the entire world because you believed in this Messiah who died on the cross? And he goes, well, is there something in you that bears witness that God loves you? Because if there's something in your soul that testifies to you that God loves you and gave his son for you, why not believe that if he would give his son for you that he would somehow stop there? There's no way he's stopping at just forgiving your sin. He's going to not just forgive your sin, but redeem all creation and put it under your leadership. Because if God is for you, who can be against you? And if God gave his own son to you, why wouldn't he give you everything else? Who dares accuse those whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us the right to stand with him. Who will condemn us? No one. For Christ died for us, was raised to life, and he's sitting at the place of honor. Can anything separate us from Christ's love? If we have trouble or calamity or hardship, or persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened, does that mean God doesn't love us? No, the scripture says, for we are killed day by day and we are being slaughtered by sheep. No, despite all these things, despite the hardships we experience in the natural, I'm convinced nothing can ever separate us from God's love. See, your inheritance is inextricably tied to your identity as a son and a daughter who is dearly loved. Neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither fear of today nor worries for tomorrow, not even the power of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. But returning back to the very point that I opened with, why is he saying that? Yes, so that we'll be convinced of his love, but more importantly, we'll be convinced of the entire story that Paul is telling. The entire story of victory over sin. The entire story of you becoming a child of God by his spirit. The entire story of you fellowshipping with his suffering that you might partake of his glory. The entire story that because you're a child you're gonna receive an inheritance. And he goes, these things seem too far to imagine, but the truth is God's love is even greater than all these things. God's love is the defining character that sets the parameters of the story. God's love in the garden as a father is what gives us confidence that the one who is seated on the throne will say, I'm making all things new. You're gonna come and be my children and you're gonna rule and reign with me. 
And he goes, this saying is faithful and true. We sing it all the time. And this is my prayer for us tonight, and I hope I've said it as clearly as I know how. When you sing the song, I am a child of God, when you sing, Abba, I belong to you, you would have a whole different biblical framework tied to that, not just one that makes you feel good because God likes you. Even though we have to start there. Like there is responsibility in eternity that is connected to our faithfulness and obedience in this life. And all of that inheritance is tied to this idea that you are a child of God. You're not, you're not a child just in name and in affection. You're a child in terms of kingdom responsibility and authority. Like you are a child whom God is preparing a kingdom for and you're gonna receive it as a co-heir with Christ. I'll just close with this final verse. It's, I believe, Revelation 3. Those who are victorious, Christ says to one of the churches in Revelation, those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. That's actually Revelation 21. But those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Let's stand and pray together.